Father, wherever two or three are gathered together in your name, there you are in the midst. We would honor the presence of Jesus here this morning. And we're so thankful that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can share that common bond of the Spirit of God who dwells within every believer. And I pray that you will create within our hearts today unity, that you'll grant to us understanding of the truth, and Lord, that we might make the truth a part of our very being, a part of that which guides our thoughts, our words, and our actions, and our attitudes. Lord, I pray that we will be the people of God that you would have us to be. Throughout this Sunday school this morning, we ask that you will be ministering in each and every class, that you'll be touching the hearts of your people to accomplish your will. There's so much about you that we have yet to learn. And Lord, we want to be prepared to hear. And so I pray that our hearts will be prepared and that you will honor your word today and make it living and powerful in each of our lives. Lord, I pray for each and every need represented here this morning, that you will meet those needs by the power of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 7, beginning at verse 8. Exodus chapter 7, beginning at verse 8. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Last week we ended uh, just beginning to look at this particular event as it's described in this passage. I noted that we're looking at what is often referred today in, in modern theological parlance as a power encounter, a head-to-head -head confrontation between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. And that's what we're going to be seeing in the next several chapters, over and over again. The God of Israel, the God of might, is, is confronting the gods of Egypt, if you will, and demonstrating their powerlessness and the reality of his sovereignty and his majesty. So we have to understand that as we look at this event, we're looking at a supernatural battle. We wrestle not, we're told in Ephesians, with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. And those of us who live in, in America, which I think most of us do, in, in this modern age of information uh, is power and, and knowledge and understanding, and we're, we're into the... Um, experiential, the practical, we're into the uh, sensing of truth, and we tend to lose track of the supernatural, of the spiritual, of what is the ultimately real. 
for what seems real to us because we can smell it or taste it or feel it. But the great reality of the universe is supernatural and is not seen by us with our eyes or heard with our ears normally, unless God so injects himself into our natural world. So as we look at this, we have to recognize we're not just talking about Moses and Pharaoh having a, a, an encounter here, uh, kind of a, a challenge of, of, of heroes or something, but we're, we're looking at God versus the powers of hell. And so Egyptian religion is, is totally saturated with demonic power. So there's reality to it. And I think we need to understand that people who believe in these pagan religions in the far corners of the world don't believe it just because they're stupid. They believe it because they have witnessed power. They have seen it happen. They have seen things happen that are inexplainable, unexplainable, and therefore they believe. Now Pharaoh feels challenged, and rightly so, as Aaron at Moses' command does what God had told him to do, throws his staff down on the ground and it becomes a serpent. It's done by supernatural power and Pharaoh is not so stupid that he doesn't understand that. So he summons his sorcerers. Well, so that's what you've done. I think my sorcerers can do as well. And so he brings in his sorcerers and they also throw their staffs down and they become snakes also. Last time, the very last thing we read was from 2 Timothy. We won't go to it again, but there Paul, in speaking to Timothy, makes reference to Janus and Jambres, the, uh, the head sorcerers in Egypt who confronted Moses. And, of course, those names are not mentioned here in Genesis. The names appear in the Jewish Targums, but uh, they seem to be uh, brought into Scripture as true names of leading sorcerers at this time. So what is the significance of this event? What is the significance of, of Aaron throwing down a stick and it becomes a snake and sorcerers coming in throwing down their staves and they become snakes and they all sit there hissing at each other? What's, what's the significance of all this? You know? Well, first of all, we have to understand that there was a class of Egyptian uh, priests, sorcerers, if you will, magicians, whatever you want to call them. We, we usually use the word magician to refer to somebody who is doing everything by sleight of hand and therefore it's all fake. Uh, but when you use the term magician in the biblical sense, you're going beyond that. Certainly there is sleight of hand involved, but probably beyond that there is true sorcery involved. And the Egyptian sorcerers claimed occultic powers. And they claimed these occultic powers and demonstrated their ability by the power to what we would call charm venomous snakes. Now, as you and I all know, the charming of snakes is still practiced in particularly southern Asia. And we've all seen the little picture of the guy playing his little flute and this thing going up like this, you know. And, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that. And it's always occultic in its manifestation. And obviously, for the natural people, now you have to kind of put yourself in Egypt and understand that in Africa you have a lot of very venomous uh, reptiles. And uh, the cobra, of course, is probably the most feared and is very common in Egypt, was more common then even than it is now. And uh, the cobra is extremely fearful creature. I mean, nothing probably was more fearful to the Egyptians 
or fear-inspiring than the cobra. And so the ability to charm such an animal, to get this creature to do what you want it to do, obviously in the eyes of the people, would put this, this sorcerer on a pedestal. Tremendous power and prestige over the people because of his ability to control this venomous animal, this deadly creature. And so obviously for Aaron to stand up there in the name of his God and throw a stick down it becomes a cobra is a direct threat to them. It's a challenge to their authority and to their prestige. Then secondly, it's the very symbol of the, of the governmental power of Lower Egypt. You've all probably seen pictures of the pharaohs and they have this mitre or this crown, if you will, on their head and they have two symbols sitting right up here. One is the falcon or the vulture, which is a symbol of Upper Egypt, and the other is the cobra, which is a symbol of, of Lower Egypt. So here, Aaron is throwing his staff down. It's becoming the very animal which, uh, which symbolizes the power and authority of Pharaoh in Lower Egypt. And that's where they were, of course, was in Lower Egypt. And so it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to the very powers behind the government of Egypt itself. This, this god they don't even know has the power to convert a stick into the, the symbolic, the, the tutelary, tutelary uh, deity of, of Lower Egypt. That is a challenge of, of the First Order. Now, there are those who, who say that there were amongst the Egyptians those who had the power to charm snakes or hypnotize them into rigidity so that they would just become stiff, you know. And that you could then take this thing and throw it on the floor. And of course, hitting the floor would jar the thing out of its hypnosis and convert it into a snake. Well, that's possible. <laughs> but obviously, a rigid snake doesn't look a whole lot like a staff. And, and the scripture clearly teaches that they threw their staffs on the floor and they became serpents. And so it's very unlikely that this is the explanation of what happened here as far as the magicians are concerned. Oh, although there are many commentators who want this. See, they don't want anything supernatural here. They want it to be explainable somehow in terms that are natural and understandable to us. But I think we have to understand we're dealing with demonically controlled occultic magicians, if you will, who have been dabbling in the dark arts, if you will, all of their lives. They have been trained in, in the ways of Egyptian sorcerers. And all the power of hell is behind them. Now the scripture tells us that they did this by their magic arts, whatever that really meant at the time. We can't really know for sure. In part, it may have been that there was some measure of sleight of hand here. It could be that it was an illusion that they were able to create. An illusion that it was a staff or an illusion that it was a serpent. Whatever the case may be, that was done, what scripture tells us, by occultic, demonic powers. And that power is real. We have a tendency in our society to brush it off. Of course, the devil is always laughed at as a you know, somebody running around in a, green, in, in, a, in a red union suit with horns and a tail and a, and a pitchfork, you know, and is ha, 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 the devil. He'd like us all to believe that, you know, because then we wouldn't think much about him and we'd never be aware of him. He is no 
person running around in union suit, as you well know. He is a very, very powerful spirit. The most powerful spirit below God and the greatest of his angels. In 2 Thessalonians, I'd like to read a passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Satan, you see, is able to perform what appear to be great wonders to the extent that God will allow him. We understand that he is a great and mighty being, intellectually especially. So in 2 Thessalonians, beginning at verse 1, chapter 2, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the, mastery, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That passage, of course, is referring to the end times, but the truths of that passage are applicable in any age. God will allow a deluding spirit to continue to prevail over a people who insist on rejecting the truth and following their ways of darkness on a people who reject the light when it comes, God will allow a deluding spirit to prevail. And that's what we're seeing in Egypt. I mean, as we go from one plague to the next, we think, how stupid is Pharaoh? He's got to be the dumbest person that's ever lived to keep rejecting uh, the obvious truth here and allowing his nation to be destroyed blow by blow. I mean, why didn't he throw the towel in a lot earlier? and save what he had, you know, cut his losses. But not Pharaoh. Pharaoh continued to resist because God allowed a deluding spirit to remain over him. He did not see the light because God had a greater plan to be carried out through Pharaoh. Think about Eve for a minute. Eve in the garden was perfect. She was perfect. She was not deluded by sin. She, she, her eyes were not darkened by, by iniquity in her heart. She was a sinless person. She was perfect, able to perceive. And yet she was deceived by the serpent in the garden because she allowed that deception to take place. And so we see 
how these individuals in Egypt whose minds are darkened by sin, who do not believe the truth, are easily deceived into believing all that the gods of Egypt supposedly could do. In this passage in, in Thessalonians, we read there where it said in verse 9 that w Satan will, his activity uh, has power and signs and false wonders. And with all deception, the secret arts of the magicians back here in, in Egypt were deceiving. It wasn't straight out as God had performed through Aaron. In some way it was deceptive, it was illusionary. But, but to everybody who witnessed it, it apparently appeared real, to Pharaoh at least, and his court. And, and what, what brought the, should have brought a shocking reality to the whole thing was that Aaron's rod swallowed up the others. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that very much. Was, was the, the cobra into which Aaron's rods converted, large, converted larger? I mean, how in the world could this serpent go around vacuuming up the other ones. You know, how, how could it happen? I mean, they just don't do that even in normal life. Now, it's a slow, slow process if you've ever witnessed it. And, and obviously this was a miraculous activity. And, and, and the, the magicians no longer had rods. <laughs> Probably some of my favorite rod, you know. <laughs> Give it back. And then, of course, when Aaron picked it up, it's exactly the same staff it was before. It wasn't bigger around because it got other rods inside it or something, you know. All of this demonstrated the power and the miracle of the living and the true God. The, the supremacy of Yahweh was proven flat out. If anybody had been there, besides Moses and Aaron, that is, with, with an open mind and could really see what was going on, they would say, yeah, Yahweh won. <clears throat> but not Pharaoh. It, it's, it's really important to note that throughout Scripture you will see confrontations between the God of Israel and the God of this world. And the God of this world is constantly trying to deceive God's people and, and those who aren't God's people into believing Him and into disbelieving God. But God constantly turns those efforts back on Satan. And God uses Satan's efforts to ultimately glorify himself and to prove Satan to be what he really is, and that is the defeated foe. So we as believers have to do two things. First of all, we have to believe that Satan is real and that he is powerful, that he is a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. But we also, on the other hand, must realize that as believers we have nothing to fear from him. If we are walking by faith in God, in prayer, and, and understanding of the word, we can overcome the evil one. He, has, he, he becomes, as many have portrayed, a toothless lion relative to us when it comes to that. But he is very real. And Christians can allow him to deceive them, if they so choose and could get themselves into a great deal of hot water. And we probably know of people like that and have heard about individuals who profess to be believers and yet got themselves in a great deal of trouble because apparently they opened the door. They opened the door to give him a foothold. He cannot blast the door down, but he can sneak in if we open it. Now, Pharaoh is totally unimpressed by this. Can you imagine? 
sitting there on his throne, looking at all this taking place, and he's unimpressed. His sinful heart was darkened. He had already made up his mind that he wasn't going to believe Moses or believe Moses God. It wasn't sitting there saying, okay, go at it here and, and I'll, I'll be the judge and I'll determine from what happens here who is the real God. Now, it wasn't a Elijah on Mount Carmel situation. This was a man who already knew what he believed and wasn't going to allow anything to change his mind. You know the old phrase, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already got my mind made up. He refused to believe the truth. So we're not talking about someone who, who wasn't convinced. We're talking about someone who rejected the clear truth. Bam! Closed the door. Would not accept it. Now this is a clear demonstration of the arrogance of the power behind that throne. As you read in Isaiah and as you read in Ezekiel, the accounts which are generally used to describe Satan in his early uh, existence and how he came to be Satan, Lucifer, and so forth, they're always set within the context of a king, king of Tyre, king of uh, Babylon. And you can put that same account here, if you will. Pharaoh is Satan's tool, his pawn. He's being used by Satan willingly. He has chosen to be used by this occultic power. He has refused to believe the truth, and he is demonstrating the arrogance which so characterized Satan. Satan is the most proud creature ever to exist. As, as he has been described, he's sort of like a personality that sucks in every personality he can get a hold of. Just into himself and takes over. And arrogance and unwillingness to bow before God is an, these are attributes of Satan. And they become the attributes of his followers. If you'll turn to the second psalm, the second psalm, first six verses. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. I mean, this is a purposeful, couched, planned, premeditated resistance to the Lord and his Messiah. Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us, acknowledging that they are, that God the Father, God the Son rule. They're going to attempt to tear those rule, uh, the, the, the reins of power away. Who, he who sits on the heaven, in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The, the picture of, of, the, of the unbeliever who has sold his heart, if you will, to the devil as opposed to the child who is the person who is chosen to serve the king. Who is the king? He is the king. He rules. And there is no question about it. And, and to us who hopefully think logically, it makes no sense to know that this person is sovereign and yet reject that reign. Because you know it's going to be destruction. But see, that's, that's the blindness that Satan brings over, over those that believe him, those that are brought into his control. To me, if I had been Satan, if I really believed the scripture a long time ago, I'd have said, give, uncle, I quit. <laughs> I have nothing more to do with this. 
I mean, why go about as a roaring lion knowing what your, your eternal damnation is going to be? What's the point of it? But see, he is such a great, all-desiring personality that, that he wants to take as many with him as he can. And, and he, uh, some uh, be, uh, believe, and I think there's possibly truth in this, that he thinks he may actually win in the end. That he actually can exalt himself to equality with the Most High. He may actually believe that he is co-equal with, with God because of the fact you know, he has no consciousness of anything before he was brought into existence, right? God brought Satan into existence at a, at a what we would have to call a moment of time because that's the only thing we understand. And, and he has no consciousness of, of existence before that. So how does he know that he and God weren't brought into existence simultaneously? And, and that he doesn't have right to be co-equal with God? and therefore not believe. Of course, you'd think after he got beat around enough times, he'd begin to get the point, but uh, apparently not. Chapter 7 of Exodus, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water, and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff, that was turned into a serpent. And you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with a staff that is in my hand, and it shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul. And the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over the streams, over their pools, and over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. First thing God notes is that Pharaoh is stubborn. He has, literally in the Hebrew, he has a dull, hard heart. So God takes the first step now in his plan to destroy Egypt. This is God's plan, to destroy Egypt. And he's going to do it beginning with this first step. God now commands Moses, in effect, saying, you are the prophet of doom. You go to Pharaoh and you're to pronounce this. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. It's going to happen. And this is going to be repeated over and over again. And Egypt will, in the process, be destroyed. Egypt will experience... If you study down through the records that, that exist throughout human history, you will find no other uh, example of repeated catastrophes, one after the other, other, in a short period of time, that in effect destroy a nation. You'll never find anything other like it. I mean, of course, there's a great flood destroyed the whole world. But other than that, you will not find anything comparable to this series of disasters which came upon Egypt. Now certainly the Egyptians had seen the Nile River turn red before, the silt coming down from the highlands of Ethiopia during the, the rainy season, or that is during the flood season, late summer, early fall. They had seen the muddy, reddish looking water, sort of like the Colorado, you know, in the, in the winter rains. They had seen this before, and they had trouble with lots of frogs before, and lots of insects before, and they'd had sandstorms that came in and darkened the sky and blocked out the sun before, but never in their history 
had they experienced such an intense series of overwhelming catastrophes as they would endure, nor had anyone else. Now, what are the purposes of these plagues? Why does God do this? Well, what did God do to Sodom and Gomorrah, you know? Whoosh! It's all over. But God isn't going to destroy Egypt utterly and completely. God is humiliating Egypt here. So God has, I believe, at least four purposes in these plagues. First, to force Pharaoh to release Israel. That is his goal, to release Israel. Now, God could release Israel in a moment. He could change Pharaoh into a person that says, yeah, I'd like the Israel to go. I want Israel to leave. Please leave. You know, he could, he could do that, but God is not doing this. So he is forcing Pharaoh through this series of disasters, as reluctantly as it may be, to ultimately release Israel. Secondly, he is punishing Israel, uh, I mean Egypt, for its repeated uh, centuries of cruelty to Israel, of, imprison, of, of enslaving this people and making them work with their blood and sweat to build these fine monuments and cities and fortifications in Egypt. It would be very interesting to know how many of those structures that still stand or which we can see ruins of were actually built by Hebrew slaves. We know some of them weren't, the Great Pyramids weren't, because they precede this. But certainly others were and, and other cities which have been at least mostly destroyed. Thirdly, God is providing a, an example for all time of his righteous judgment on an unjust, oppressive, and demon-inspired culture. God does not compromise. God deals with wickedness. And then fourthly, to prove beyond all shadow of a doubt that Yahweh reigns supreme over this earth over the pantheon of the gods of Egypt, no matter how ancient they may be, how powerful they supposedly may be, or how powerful collectively they were thought to be, that El Shaddai is God Almighty. And that's one of the truths, I think, that re rings through Scripture from Genesis through, through Revelation that ought to encourage us. We serve God Almighty. Not a God who just rules over Israel or planet Earth or maybe the solar system, but doesn't really know what's going on beyond there. But a God who created it all. A God who flung the Mesars and the Pulsars and the Quasars and all the other Sars out there. Who, who threw these big galaxies out there that throughout most of history nobody even knew they existed until the telescope was invented, you know, back in the... 16th century, and, and then they began to discover what's out there. And, and for many, it's discouraging. They say, well, obviously, if it's so big, then God can't be all that significant. But that's not the God of the Bible. He is all in and all. He created it all. I mean, we, we have to kind of put it in ways that we can understand. It's kind of like God standing out there, and he can stand outside the universe and look in on it. No, I'm not saying he does that, but he could. I mean, that's how vast he is, how great he is. We don't understand that. How can that be? Well, it's a little more understandable if you get into Einsteinian physics and understand that some of the things that Einstein postulated 
become incomprehensible to us in, in you know, our scientifically bent culture. You know, how it is something could possibly ultimately achieve infinite mass. How could something achieve infinite mass? And yet that's the theory of, of uh, approaching the speed of light for an object approaching the speed of light. Well, the next scene in what is really a cosmic drama here began when God instructed Moses and Aaron to go intercept Pharaoh the following morning on the banks of the Nile River. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever stood on the banks of the Nile River, but it's a whole lot like just about any other river. <laughs> you know, water flowing between a couple of dirt banks and with these reeds growing along it. And, and there's nothing particularly inspiring about the Nile except the fact that it is the Nile, you know, the longest river in the world, a river of, of great antiquity uh, historically. It's possible every day Pharaoh did this, or at least periodically he went out to the banks of the Nile. Now, I don't think he was going out there just for a stroll in the morning. Maybe, but I don't think so. I think that he went out there periodically as part of his worship of the gods of Egypt and particularly the god of the Nile. He may have done some ritual bathing in the Nile for all we know. That may have been what Pharaoh's daughter was doing when she found Moses floating in the bulrush rushes there. Amongst the papyrus reeds, actually, probably. And so Moses goes out there to the river's edge to meet Pharaoh while he is probably going out on a religious duty. He was the son of Amun-Re, the son of the sun god, and therefore it is his responsibility to stand between his nation and the gods of Egypt. So that was probably what he was going out there to do. It's very apropos for what this encounter involved. So what does God do? God sends his ambassadors, Moses and Aaron, into the very heart of enemy territory, probably while the Pharaoh, who is the most powerful person in all of Egypt, not only because he's a governmental ruler, but because he is the son of God in their theology, that he sends his ambassadors to meet this person one-on-one -on -one while he is preparing to do his ritual duty. I mean, that is walking into the pit of hell, if you will. Sending your ambassadors to, to front, confront Satan in all of his power. It's interesting, though, God didn't send Moses and Aaron to negotiate with Pharaoh. No, they were sent to confront Pharaoh with the demands of the sovereign God. The darkness of false worship is being penetrated by the blazing light of truth here, but Pharaoh will not see it. Now, to some extent, this is our job today, too. We may not be walking face to face into you know, the Church of Satan and confronting Antoine LaVey or whatever his name is down there. I don't know if he's still alive, but anyway, uh, we may not be doing that. But, but in our walk every day, as we commit ourselves to serve the Lord, we are doing something very similar to this. In fact, you know the passage, let's just turn to it. I didn't get it on your outline, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we, as ambassadors of Christ, go into the very pit of hell, if you were, uh, will, uh, on a daily basis to minister reconciliation through the life which we live, the words which we speak, the attitude attitudes which we display. If we have a bad attitude, we're a bad ambassador. If we say things that are uh, dishonoring to God, we're a bad ambassador. It's important that we have a right attitude, that we say right words, that we have right actions, that we demonstrate the reality of our faith. And that's, of course, what James talks about. I mean, the book of James is largely about the fact that if we really profess faith, then we must demonstrate that faith by our actions. And our good works will prove the reality of the faith we proclaim. Moses and Aaron could have said, oh, we're not going to go out there right there. I mean, he's going to be, oh, no. They went right out there. I mean, I don't know how bold they were, but they went out there because God impelled them to go. And they became ambassadors for Yahweh in the face of of Pharaoh. And you and I may not face Pharaoh, but we may face people as hard-hearted as Pharaoh. Now, as far back as Egyptian culture can be documented, there is abundant evidence to indicate that the Egyptians have been a very religious and superstitious people. The, the pantheon, or the pantheism, I should say, and uh, polytheism, and spirit worship that was characteristic of their society seems to have had its root way back in the 10th chapter of Genesis. And I alluded to this before. The scripture tells us that there was a great man by the name of Nimrod. And, and he stood, just as Pharaoh did here, resistant to God. I mean, in God's face is what the Hebrew more or less says there. We, we kind of have a good, I mean, I know how good it is, but I mean, a, a, an expression today that really relates what Nimrod was. You know, we say, in your face. Um, I hope we don't say that, but it is said in our culture. And, and that's really what Nimrod was all about. In your face, God. And, you know, the Hebrew says that, almost like that there. And through him was introduced the pantheistic, polytheistic worship which spread around the world. Now, Nimrod was the son of Cush, whose brother was Mizraim, who was the ancestor of the Egyptian people. So the Egyptians were impacted by the teaching of Nimrod from the beginning. And, and they had this pantheistic, polytheistic spirit worship that was part of their society down through the millennia. Eventually, every one of the Egyptian cities. Now, the Egyptian cities, I, I gave you a map a couple of times before, but if you follow the Nile River down, uh, the Egyptian cities were strung out along the river like beads on a string. 
Egypt wasn't spread far and wide like the United States was. Just a narrow little culture living in this valley right along the river. Every one of those cities was a city-state originally. That is, controlled the territory around it, was more or less independent from one, each from the other. And they were called gnomes, N-O-M-E-S. And each of these gnomes had its own tutelary god, a kind of a guardian deity, the, the god that they worshipped, a totem, if you will. And these tutelary gods, once Egypt began to merge into a, a unified nation, these tutelary gods became the pantheon of Egypt. And all Egyptians basically believed in all the gods. But some of them arose as more powerful than others. Usually it depended on the strength of the city-state uh, as to which gods arose to the top of the, of the pantheon. Certainly of greatest importance was the sun god Amun-Re. Now originally he was two gods. In Thebes they worshipped Amun and in Memphis they, they emphasized Re. He was basically the same god. And so when the country was unified and Memphis was the dominant uh, city, why they just hyphenated the god, if you will. And so in the New Kingdom, which we're talking about here, the Egyptians worshipped as their paramount god, Amun-Re. Now he was often confused with Horus, the falcon god, uh, the one who has the all-seeing eye, you know, on your dollar bill, top of the pyramid, that all-seeing eye. The all-seeing eye of Horus is considered to be somewhat of a manifestation of Amun-Re. The, the Egyptian I, I talked about this so way back, I think, when we began our study of Moses, a little bit about Egyptian religion. And there's a lot of nebulousness about it. Uh, the gods kind of move in and out, and they, they overlap in their authority, and sometimes the, the figures merge into one another, then they separate. So there's not a, a um, clear theogony of the gods of Egypt. But uh, one of the gods a little bit less than Amun-Re, but sometimes really more powerful was Osiris. Because Osiris was a kind of a god that the people could relate to more directly than Amun-Re is just way up there in the sky floating over and of course he rules all because he's the sun and, and Egypt, Egypt was dependent upon the sun for life. But, but Osiris was the god of grain and vegetation and he worked out to also be the god of the annual flooding of the Nile. Therefore, god of the Nile. Now, there's more than one god of the Nile, but he was probably the best known god of the Nile. Apis, the bull god, was often also associated with the Nile because he was a fertility deity, just as Isis was. She was a cow goddess, and uh, she was a goddess of fertility, the goddess of motherhood. Therefore, she is also sometimes associated with the Nile River. Well, everything was associated with the Nile River. So as, as we move through the uh, study of these different uh, uh, plagues, John was asking this this morning, we'll discover that there is a direct relationship between the plague and the gods of Egypt. God is specifically humiliating and overpowering the area of authority of the various gods of Egypt to show that they are nothing compared to him. Uh, the story is that Osiris and his sister wife Isis were the children of the sky and the earth. 
the sky and the earth got together and the sky was impregnated by the earth and she gave birth to two children, Osiris and Isis, and they married each other. And, and they, by the way, will, will uh, produce Horus. <laughs> and and uh, one of the common images of Egypt is Isis sitting on her throne here with little baby Horus at her breast. But, but Horus is then confused with Amun-Re as the great god of all Egypt and the god of the falcon which sits on the pharaoh's crown. Are you confused? Well, so were they. <laughs> um, Osiris had a brother named Seth. Seth was the god of the storm and god of chaos. And he was jealous of his brother Osiris because Osiris was king of Egypt, god of the Nile, uh, looked to by everybody, whereas Seth was looked at kind of like we look at the devil, you know. And so he kills Osiris. Now, don't ask me how gods kill each other, but anyway, in mythology they do. It's supposed to be immortal, right? But somehow immortals become mortal. But he kills him and dumps his body in the, in the Nile, and, and Isis is, of course, totally forlorn. She searches high and low, and eventually she finds the body of Osiris, and she resurrects the body of Osiris. And there's a very important concept here. It has a lot to do with the everyday functioning of the Egyptians. To the Egyptians, life was in the flooding of the Nile. If the Nile didn't flood, life was over in Egypt. And as you know, the seven years of famine were most likely the result of the non-flooding of the Nile for seven years. Uh, so to them, this was the most important thing. It was the very pulse, the heartbeat of Egypt was the flooding of the Nile annually. And they had, a, at, at, in the upper Nile region, they had gauges carved right in the rocks to measure the level to which the river went on the flooding stage. And they could tell by that whether it was going to be a good year or a bad year. If they didn't go high enough, it wasn't going to be a good year. If it went too high, of course, <laughs> wiped everybody out. That wasn't so good either. But uh, if it fell within these parameters, everything was okay. The whole death resurrection of Osiris relates to the flooding of the Nile. The death of Osiris is when the river drops to its lowest ebb and the country is dry as a bone. That's the death of Osiris. And then when the floods come and the water spreads across the valley and the green things pop up, that's the resurrection of Osiris. So you see, Satan used Osiris to deceive the people into believing that Osiris was responsible for what God was responsible for. The Yahweh of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, is responsible for daily sustenance and the provision of life but Satan does everything he can to confuse people into not believing in the true and the living God, but having some other reason to believe why life is maintained. But God is sending Pharaoh, uh, Moses before Pharaoh so that he and all Egypt will know that it is the God of Israel who is the sustainer of life, and in the process, God is just about to zap Osiris. And he does it as easily as that, converts the entire Nile River to blood. Ghastly thought when you think about it. Well, I'll leave it there. Uh, we, there are some explanations given, by the way, as to how the Nile River turned red and lots of ways trying to explain that it be, that it be a natural process of some sort, that it wasn't really blood. And We'll look at that next week uh, because it's a very interesting study in the disbelief in the supernatural.
many, many do not want to believe that God actually intervenes in life. But they still have this kind of a deistic idea that God set it all going, threw the earth out there and set it spinning, kind of like, you know, got it going, and then walked away. And it's how we live according to the rules that were created in the beginning uh, when this all started, that that determines how we fare and, and that you, you know, have no direct contact with God in any way, shape, or form. Prayer is a meaningless, pious thing to do, but has nothing to do with, with God. But we'll see how that isn't exactly what the Scripture teaches.